Romans chapter 1, let's talk about what Romans is about. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Whose power? God's power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that should be understood as everyone who already believes. You never move on past the gospel. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, it is not just, yeah, I believe that. You're in and good to go and you don't need Jesus anymore. No, the death and resurrection of Christ is the power of God to live the Christ life. So notice he says here, it is for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Salvation in Romans does not mean go to heaven when you die. Paul never uses it that way. If he wants to talk about that, he uses the words justification and justified. Because we don't see this word pop up again until he, until he starts to talk about sanctification. What it is to let go of life so that Christ will live his life through you. So what does he mean by salvation? To be saved from the wrath of God because of ongoing sin in the believer's life. He says here, verse 17, for, here's the explanation, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, practical righteousness is revealed, it's made known from faith, justifying faith, to faith, sanctifying faith, As it is written, but the righteous, cross out man, it's not there, but the righteous, those who are already saved, shall what? Live by faith. How do you live? How do you live your life? By faith. Faith is the only answer. It's the way that we came into a relationship with Christ, and it's the way that we develop our fellowship in Christ. It is only one way and one way alone by faith. Now, we've talked about what it is to be justified, declared righteous before God. We've talked about what it is with the wrath of God against ongoing sin in the life and how God wants to move us out of that. And so Paul is giving us reason after reason after reason, and he's explaining to us the consequences and also the incentives, depending on how we choose to live our lives. And in Romans chapter 8, you can move there now if you have your Bible, We're going to start in verse 6 because he gives a foundational statement. It all deals with what you believe is true. And believe, I don't mean that as in, well, I think that's right. That's not what I'm talking about. The idea of faith or belief in Scripture is defined clearly in Hebrews 11.1. It is the idea of conviction. It is, are you convinced about this fact? It's not simply that you subscribe to it or that it might be true. The question is, is do you have an internal conviction about this? It all starts with what you believe to be true. So look at chapter 8, verse 6. The mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Now remember, he's writing to believers. And here's what he's letting you know. You have a choice for how you live your life. But it is all predicated upon what you believe to be true about God, his word, 
his son, and his power. That's the difference. I think it's a good thing for us to ask the question every once in a while, am I surviving or am I thriving? That's a good question to ask. I think we should ask that as a church. Are we surviving or are we thriving? It's often interested to see what people want to put forward as the evidence for either one. Because then what we do is we come back to the inerrant word of God and we ask the question, well, is that what God says that a thriving believer looks like? Or is that what God says is a surviving believer looks like? Oftentimes we're so hard on ourselves, we don't think we're good for anything. What you recognize is, is that everything you are, you are because Christ made you. There's a successful starting point. That's how you grow. You grow from what God has said about you, not what you think about you, not what people say about you. And I'm going to tell this story because I think it's funny. Art came in this morning. He said, I went to festival and I picked up the donut holes. I said, yeah. He goes, all those ladies back there know you. I said, they do. And I've talked to a couple of them. He goes, yeah, they talk about how long-winded you are. I thought they must know me, right? And then it wounded me desperately. It's okay. I was behind there. We were practicing this morning. And while everybody else was singing, I was sobbing and nobody heard it. It was good. I dealt with it. I had my moment. I'm just kidding. But regardless of what people think or say about you, the question is, is what has God said about me? And what I think is interesting is, is if it deals with the mind, what we believe to be true at any moment in time, what we have a conviction about, will determine our success in moving forward. Notice that Paul wants you to get that. If your mind is focused on your flesh and you, if you are the center of your existence, you can be guaranteed that less things come from that. You know what? It's actually much worse than that. He gives it the word death. Death. Notice that Paul's not playing around. However, if you're focused on the Spirit, how do I do that? He's telling us. If you are looking for God to lead your life, see, that's the interesting thing. A lot of the Christ life is letting go. Now, I know you type A personalities just, you're getting ready to pop the jugular and kill over. I get it. Because we want to control everything. And I think the reason why we want to control everything is because we don't want to face the reality that we really can't control anything. That's the truth. The truth is, is I want to control it because I want to think that I have some sort of security and assurance and and it got, or maybe it got done because of me. I was in there doing that kind of thing. The words, God's got it, is way more threatening than we'd like to admit sometimes. But he does. And there's everything safe and good and right about that. Notice verse 7. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, the idea is, is because you have the Spirit, You belong. That's the secret. Now, skip down with me, if you would, to verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 11. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. These very things that plague us, that withhold sin inside of it, the very nature of sin, is actually going to be redeemed one day. I don't know about if if you understand that or not, but this is the grand subject called glorification. Now, let me show you a little chart real quick. Mitch, can we bring up our chart? And if you want paper copies of this, they're located on the second shelf of that shelf. They're located on the second shelf of the bookshelf that is back there by the audio video booth. And maybe, can you see that very well? Can we see that? So in Romans, the idea of salvation, we have justification, we have sanctification, and today we are hitting this area of glorification, being delivered from the presence of sin by being removed from the earth and taken to be with Christ for all eternity. Glorification. It's not talked about enough. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, what is it, 4 and 5, we're told, encourage one another about this glorification that is to come. Let's look at this real quick, how we transition to that. Verse 12, So then, brethren, you're not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you're living according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do I do that? How do I put to death the deeds of the body? Do I need to get in there and actively cut that snake's head off? Is that what I have to do? No. He gives you the answer. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. In other words, when I'm being led by the Spirit, I'm not sinning. I'm not entertaining the flesh. I'm not concerned about me and mine. I'm living in a pre-fall Edenistic viewpoint. All that matters is God and what he wants for my life. I don't even care that I'm naked. I don't even care that I got something to cover up. I'm not even worried about asserting my rights anywhere because all I care about is a view of him and what he wants. So when I'm led by the Spirit, that's how the deeds of the flesh are being put to death. The Spirit of God does that. Can you be led by the Spirit and sinning at the same time? Does that work? No, it doesn't work at all. In fact, we often find our times in this situation and something pops up and makes us sin. Notice how I passed the blame off on that one. Or that we respond sinfully, and immediately we need to have 1 John 1, 9 and confess that sin. Deal with it right then and there. God, that was wrong. Your word says it was wrong. I'm wrong. You're the only one that's right. Thank you, God, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And move on with it. Guess what? Immediately restored the fellowship. Immediately. Sons of God is a title. It is an opportunity. In fact, from what I counted, there are five instances of sons of God in the Scripture if you want to document these. Um, I don't want to belabor this, but we're not just a preaching, you listen to me talk church. We're also a Bible study church, and I think that's important. In Exodus chapter 3, and also if you were to look over in your Bible to Romans chapter 9 verse 4, Israel is called God's son, the sons of God. Moses goes and he tells Pharaoh, God says, let my son go. He calls Israel his son. We also see, bring this up real quick, Galatians 3 on the overhead. There's a sense in which all New Testament believers are called sons of God. Again, context determines the meaning here. And because Paul is talking about the opportunities that are available to every believer, that's how he uses it here. 
So he says, therefore, the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. In other words, we've all, if you've believed in Christ, you've been accepted into that family atmosphere. There, he uses sons of God in a generic sense that covers all New Testament believers. If you move on here, Genesis 6, we know the fallen celestial beings, the sons of God, looked upon the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful. And this is how we had incredible corruption come upon the earth that warranted the flood. Romans chapter 8, right here, verse 14, we deal with sons of God as the idea of maturing Christians. Notice in verse 15, for you've not received a spirit of slavery, leaving to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, heirs also, heirs of God, and everyone is an heir of God who is a believer, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. All believers in Christ are heirs of God, but it is suffering that gives way to greater glory. And that is not just any suffering. Some of this talks about in Romans 8 is a general suffering that we deal with, but a lot of it has to do in our opposition to the way that the world has unfolded itself. Anybody just a little ticked off by how things are going? Do you ever look at it and kind of grit your teeth and go, oh, good grief. What are people thinking? How come everybody's taking crazy pills? Just me? Okay, I want to make sure. Seems like the whole world's on drugs. I don't know what's wrong with everybody. But the reason why I'm so agitated about that is not because I have some sort of personal vendetta, something that I'm trying to get accomplished. What I've noticed is that it's something that comes from inside. It is something inside of me that says, this is not right. That's the Spirit of God testifying with your spirit. There's better. There's better. There's better. No, this is not the end. I don't understand how unbelievers make it today. A lot of them are not. A lot of them can't handle it. And we can no longer afford as Christians to compartmentalize the word of God is just one book on the shelf of many. Is God's word true? Is it only true for church? Is it only true for Sunday? So what are we doing with it? It is true for all of life. We wonder why we've had such an increase in calls to suicide hotlines. We wonder why we've had such an increase and prescription medication that's been given out. We wonder why we have such an increase of health problems and health issues. And everybody laughs at the preacher when he says, we got a truth problem, that's the issue. Fine, laugh all you want, but what you're doing is not working. All the solutions that we come up with are not making it. And we can only continue to do the same stupid things over and over and over again 
We've got to come to the point where we humble ourselves and recognize there is an almighty God who has written a divinely inspired book by the Holy Spirit that actually has the answer to my issues. Because we keep scrambling to find them here. Guess what? They're not here. They're not here. You will not find it. The Son of God had to come from outside of this world into this world in order to save this world. It doesn't happen any other way. And the sooner that we would evangelize and disciple and let people know the gospel is so relevant to your life, especially in this day and age. I don't know about you, but God has pretty much allowed an opportunity to formulate. Anybody notice that the doors have opened wide for a lot of understanding of the gospel because of the pandemic? I would hope so. I would hope that we would have eyes to see that truth. Step off the soapbox. Move on. It says here, verse 18, and this begins the glorification section. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. Not worthy. Stop for a second. It ain't even worth it. The hardships that we go through in this earthly life cannot even begin to hold a candle. Look what it says here. Are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God has promised a glory out ahead. This is why we are constantly called, set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because if you focus on this life, depression is your end. If we're just worried about how I'm being affected, and if it's all internal, see, this is one of the problems of self-isolation. You got a lot of time to think about you. There's more. There's grand orchestration a future history called glorification that is waiting for every one of the believers in Christ. And God wants you and I to have that maximum. And he wants to let you know, you know what, when you feel like giving up, remember this, your present suffering cannot hold a candle to what I'm going to show you, to what I'm going to give you, to what I'm going to reveal, to how I am going to blow minds with the end of this world. Now watch how he does this. Verse 19, what evidence do we have of this? Well, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the who? Sons of God. I know this is kind of a strange churchy word. Would you say that the creation is travailing right now? We hear about earthquakes. You hear about tsunamis. You hear about hurricanes. You hear about crazy weather in weird places. You hear about the plates moving. What are those things called? Tectonic plates. Who named that? Make it easier to say. Good grief. We've got all kinds of problems where we see that creation is longing for better. Longing for better. Creation is testifying that it needs relief. I wonder how much Ben Gay sales have gone up. Our bodies are testifying for relief. The anxious longing of the creation, it waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. You know what that means? It means that everything that God created in Genesis 1 is going like this. 
It's waiting. It's eager. It's tapping its foot at a rapid tempo. And it's waiting for a moment. Show me the sons of God. Now, if we understand this in our context, we understand what that looks like as it happens in a moment in time. And this is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. When Christ comes back, destroys all opposition, sets up his kingdom. And those people who have suffered with Christ in this life will actually be given positions and thrones of ruling and reigning and regal responsibilities alongside him as he reigns perfectly for a thousand years over creation. Creation is waiting for that moment. We know that that doesn't happen during the tribulation because the tribulation is when everything is quaking and falling apart. So we know that can't be it. See, we can time this. We can tell you exactly when it's going to happen. But all of creation is waiting for that day. When Jesus rips through the sky, when it rolls up like a scroll, and he comes back, and everybody on earth starts losing their ever-loving minds because all the things that they thought they would never get caught doing, they've now been caught red-handed. I don't know about you and me, but we're going to party. I'm excited about this party. Because let's be honest, you're so negative. I hate this life. Does this life have good things that are in it? Yeah. Guess what? God supplied every one of them. There's nothing that this life and this world and the people of this life have given me that is worth a hill of beans when you think about what it looks like in eternity. And see, this is the problem. If we don't have this eternal perspective, we don't get motivated to live now in light of what's to come. God uses two motivators in Scripture to light a fire under our spiritual rear ends. The very first thing he does is he wants you to know everything that you are in Christ. He wants to talk to you about your identity. He wants to talk to you about your redemption. He wants to talk to you about the fact that you've been freed from sin, that your sins have been paid for, that you're no longer obligated to keep the law of God whatsoever because when Christ died, you died to the law as well, and he is your righteousness as far as the law is concerned. That's first things he wants you to know. The second thing is, is the glory that is out ahead, he wants to give you a glimpse to live in light of the future. He wants you to begin now storing up treasure in heaven. Don't store up things here. Moths will get it. I used to have the cutest 1970s Kermit the Frog you've ever seen in your life. And his body was as such to where he had hands and feet with the the sharp little pricky part of Velcro on it. But the rest of his body was like the part you could stick it to. So he could be like, ah, 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 right? Anytime, feet. Ah, I'm not about to do that, but you know what I'm talking about. Anytime. And when we moved... When we left God's country of Kentucky and moved to the swampland of Indiana, also known as Dagobah and Tartarus, some of you will get that. I remember going in and checking out those animals, and moths had eaten away the right side of Kermit's mouth. I didn't cry. I said I didn't cry. <laughs> but let me ask you a question. What do you think I did with Kermit once I saw what condition he was in? Threw it away. Wasn't any good anymore. 
wasn't any good anymore. Didn't matter what I stored up on this earth. Doesn't matter what I channeled my energy in, in the here and now. It doesn't last. Rust. It doesn't last. I don't care how much rustoleum you put over it. It doesn't last. Thieves. They even got Martha Stewart's house. Some of you didn't know that. Oh, it doesn't last. There's nothing that can be placed anywhere that someone can't get. What does Jesus tell us? Store up treasure in heaven. Moths can't get it. Thieves can't steal it. Rust can't touch it. Guess what? You get it back in full. The creation right now is speaking a message. It is testifying. When we see these horrible things that happen, the weather's going crazy. Who controls the weather? You don't say God. Your theology's off. God controls the weather. Who controls the quakes of this earth? Think about it, man. It's a demonstration of his power. So if that's the case, it's all moving and it's all preaching a message. There are greater things to come. This is not the end. Because if it continues on like it is, everything falls apart. And it's not going to be any good whatsoever except to put in the trash. He says in verse 19, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Do you see that? The word futility. It was subjected to a state of being that has no value. It actually ended up becoming worthless. From everything you can tell from the beginning of the Bible, was Eden beautiful? Yeah. What do you think it'd look like now if it was still standing? Right? Nasty. Funky. Weeds. Anybody out there gardening people, working your yard, like that's your pride and joy? Okay. Anybody want to do it? You want to deal with Eden now? What it would look like? No, probably not. In fact, we're told as a result of the curse, thorns and thistles, right? Those aren't fun. That's what it becomes. It was subjected to uselessness, worthlessness. But look what it says. Not willingly. The creation didn't say, please make me less. Please make me junk. Please make me something that no one wants to deal with. No, the creation didn't ask for it. But notice, because of him, God subjected it. Why? Because there's hope. Because he understood that by taking all of creation and putting it into a situation of judgment that upholds his perfect justice, that he would put everybody in a state where they recognize their divine need for God. We can't give Eve such a hard time. We blame her for a lot, especially when we don't want to take the personal responsibility for our sin. But she was in a state right there where she had fellowship with God And she understood that there was something harmonious about that. I'm sure she did. But she didn't lack for anything, and so she had no need. Subjecting the creation to futility puts us all in a position of need. Now, our problem is, is we take the God-shaped hole that we have, and we fill it with everything that's been created. God's saying, no, all of it testifies to the fact that I'm the creator. That's what fills the God-shaped need. So he says here, he subjected it in hope. And hope to what? Verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. In other words, it will one day be vindicated from its constant cycle of breaking down. 
It will one day thrive and flourish in such a way that you won't be able to comprehend. But it's all groaning and quaking and aching unto that day. Now watch how this moves here. Shall be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, it'll be released from bondage when all of God's children come to this glorification point. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Childbirth fun? No, the pains of childbirth surrounding it. When you hold the child in your hand, was it worth it? Notice that God structured that in order to point to what he's going to do with all of existence in history. Just as it is a tumultuous time, the result was worth it. Verse 23, he shifts focus here, and he wants to talk about you and me. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And he tells us what that is, the redemption of our body. We ourselves, if it's not enough to watch the creation go through this travailing time, think about you. Think about what you're dealing with. Think about how you still have the mentality of a 35-year-old, but you feel like a 95-year-old. <laughs> Some of you can set your legs out there and make your knees go in all four directions. Make chiropractors do that. Some of us wonder where those aches came from. I messed up my hip the other day. I didn't do anything. I just messed it up. I tried to roll over in bed. <laughs> right? Whole handful of theragesic. Heating pad. Tylenol's my new best friend. I'm 43 years old. I shouldn't have these issues. Even I testify that I need help. Notice, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What does that mean? The festival of first fruits were whenever you would have a situation of planting a field in Israel, and you would take the first little part of harvest there, and you would put it in a basket. This is in Deuteronomy 26, if you ever want to see this. And you would bring it to the temple to be offered to the priest. And the idea is, is God, I'm thanking you through this offering of what you supplied so far because I know that you will continue to supply all of my needs and I want to honor you first. And I'm taking you by faith that you're going to give a greater abundance moving forward. Think about that. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Mitch, bring up 2 Corinthians 1. Here's what Paul tells us about the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. We got it there? There we go. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a what? Pledge. Some of your translations are going to see guarantee. Guarantee of what? Why do you have the Holy Spirit? You ever thought about that? We have the first fruits of the Spirit. The reason is, is because the first fruits, the Spirit residing in you and me, 
is the beginning inkling of what God is going to reveal in you in the future. The Holy Spirit is the little part, and I'm not demeaning him whatsoever, but he is giving you a slight glimpse or a foreshadow of the great glory that is to come. That's why, what's up? He is a deposit. It will be redeemed later. That's why when you lose hope in the ability of this, you can always come back to the infinite hope of the ability of this. This is why you can't live the Christian life in the flesh. You've got to live the Christ life in the Spirit. The Spirit has to do the work. So notice, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We're waiting for the same thing the creation is. The interesting thing about that is it happens at two different times. The redemption of the creation happens at the end of the tribulation. That's when the sons of God will be on full display. But he tells us what this is. Pay attention. He says, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. What is the adoption of sons? A lot of people say, well, we already are adopted as sons. No, if you go back up in Romans, it says we have the spirit of adoption. Yes, we have not been adopted as sons yet. Not yet. Why? Because the adoption of sons is the redemption of the body. What's the redemption of your body? What's that event called? The rapture. It is called the rapture. Now let me show you this. This is very important for us to understand. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I've got to end in four minutes because we're going to sing some stuff. Stick with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know what that is? This. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Exact same thing that that, uh, Jesus said in John 3. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The perishable are those believers who have died. Your body your body that has died, your body can't inherit it. It can't do it the way that it is. It's frail and it's fallen. He says here, verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery, something that was previously not known that's been revealed now. We will not all sleep. We will not all pass away. Now notice, Paul's writing this at his time 2,000 years ago. He believed in his lifetime that he was going to see the rapture. He had every reason to anticipate its coming in his lifetime. How much more so us now? We should live in anticipation of this being caught up to be with him and being transformed with him. So notice, behold, I tell you, mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will be changed, made otherwise. Now, I don't know about you. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm not a big fan of myself. Anybody a big fan of you? Good answer. Man, you would have got smoked on that one. Okay, verse 52. When is this going to happen? It's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead, those believers who have passed away, will be raised. Resurrection is going to happen. Also known as the rapture. Notice, imperishable. Raised, imperishable. And we will be changed. Notice there are two people there. The dead in Christ will be raised, imperishable. They died perishable, but they'll be raised imperishable. And then those people who are alive on the earth, well, guess what happens to them? 
they get changed. It says here, verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal, that is the living, those who are living during the rapture when it takes place, must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Why? Because death and sin and hell couldn't hold you. Because sickness couldn't kill you. Because disease couldn't take your capital L-I-F-E. That life is eternal. That life was given to you by Christ at the moment you responded to the gospel in belief. That life is guaranteed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So he says here, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Can't be found. In fact, you want, take your pen, write it in there. Nowhere. Tell death. Mm, Stick your tongue out. Where's your victory? Nowhere. Oh, death, where's your sting? None. Death is nothing to be afraid of. You have not received a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption. Adoption, not fear, adoption. It says here, verse 56, the sting of death is what? Sin. Notice it's singular. Did Jesus take care of that? Thank you, Jesus. Notice the next part. And the power of sin, what gives indwelling sin its power? It's the law. Oh, everything that you think that God expects of you, which he actually really doesn't because he's perfectly fulfilled it all in Christ. We are not obligated to live up to the law. And anytime we put ourselves under, well, I need to act this way. I need to look this way. I need to dress this way. I need to smell this way. I should should be this way. I should say these things so that for some reason, God will love me or accept me more. I'll have assurance of my salvation. Guess what? You've just fallen into the trap of serving sin. And what Paul is saying here is, no, don't live like that. Live in light of the resurrection to come. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Aren't you glad you didn't have to accomplish your own victory? It's not about what we do. Glorification is about everything that Christ has done and what he wants to share with you and with me. God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about him. It's all about him being our answer. It's all about him, him, him. Do we get that? Like, yes, Jeremy, we get this. Shut up. Are you excited about it? Let me tell you this. The body of Christ is incredibly unique because we're all joined together under the head of who Christ is. Nobody else in in all of history experiences this type of relationship that we do during this age of the church dispensation. Only the church has been given this. Only the church has been given the indwelling Holy Spirit. Nobody else has this. Only the church age has been promised the rapture. Nobody else has this. These are means by which we are to go about encouraging one another in the body of Christ. I guarantee you there are people in the body And probably many of them right now have not been here since March and they're listening from home and know that we love you. 
and we miss you. But we need to be encouraging one another. Not just about anything. Girl, your hair looks so good. No. No. Get the focus off of persons and put them on the certain destiny that has been set forward because of Jesus Christ. It's all about what he has done for us. Why? Because we all need to be encouraged to press on and be faithful so that we will be revealed as sons of God. Not every Christian will be seen as a son of God when he returns. And that is a reality that Scripture preaches, and we have got to come to that fact. This is why there are constant exhortations. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. How do I be faithful? I need to do this, I need to do it. No, you need to stop doing all that and just focus on Jesus and watch what he does through you. It's not an elitism. It is a humble recognition moment by moment. I need you, Jesus. Period. Period. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy in giving the Lord in our place. But thank you that you didn't just stop in paying for our sins. You've guaranteed an incredible future. Father, help us to recognize the grand scope of this understanding, this idea of glorification. That the things that we're dealing with now, the hardships, how we suffer, how we're losing loved ones, how people are sick and frail, how everything that we seem to do or attempt to do falls apart, how for some reason we can just never seem to say the right things or keep our mouths shut in situations or, or whatever it is. God, our failings are many. That's not a surprise. You've called us beyond all those things to look to Christ, to be consumed with Christ, to be focused on Christ. Hardships are going to come. You've promised us that if we will suffer with Christ in those things, to be faithful, to endure faithfully, that we will also be glorified with him. God, please cover our entire being with that hope. Put that at the forefront of our minds. Make that the restless pursuit of our hearts. Help us to just rest in the fact of everything that Jesus has done from beginning to end, start to finish. He is our God. We thank you, God, for that. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.